0: Traditional employment, a full-time or part-time job with a single employer, has been a staple of the American economy for, well, just about forever. Recently, there's been a significant expansion in the growth of so-called non-traditional or gig workers who work primarily as contractors or through internet-based platforms. Recently, there's been a significant expansion in the growth of non-traditional or gig workers who work primarily as contractors or through internet-based platforms. Most of these workers express a lot of satisfaction with the flexibility gig work provides, but that flexibility comes at a cost, chiefly in maintaining access to benefits like health insurance, paid time off, retirement, and unemployment. As the share of the economy made up of these workers grows, so do the challenges. In this episode of Hardly Working, I'm joined by Leah Palagashvili, a senior research fellow from George Mason University, as we discuss her recent research on the gig economy and some of the solutions to the benefits dilemma. Leah Pagashvili, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working.
1: Thank you, Brent, for having me.
0: It's a total pleasure. And I feel like I know you a lot better than just somebody that I have encountered in a meeting or two because we have so many friends, or at least one important friend in common over at the Mercatus Center, and Jennifer Zambone was describing to me these delightful gifts that you brought her from a recent trip. And she, yeah, she's pretty much in the Leah Hangs the Moon cohort and admirer of yours. And so she's been Aunt Jennifer around our house for a long time, so she's good people.
1: One more friend, Kim (laughs) Brunsley.
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: Also at the Mercatus Center, yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, this podcast is about work and about how we arrange our lives so that work is such a good fit for us that it feels like we're hardly working, even when we're working hard. As I say that, I'm thinking that describes you. I see you as one of the happiest warriors in the public (laughs) policy space, somebody who really loves the material that they work on and enjoys the give and take of the policy process and enjoys it in a way that people know that you're enjoying it. And therefore, they don't worry so much about what you're saying, actually, because it's (laughs) like she's not here. It's not it's not a dominance contest, not here to win something. I'm here to advance an idea. And so I, I think you have a you really have that ethos down in your own life. So tell us how you got to where you are. And I encourage people to go back as far as they want to. I think that sometimes family relationships and early life are really dispositive to where people wind up. And I, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect that's true of you.
1: Yeah. So th- thank you. Thank you, Brent. It's great to chat with you. I think it's a great idea to t- have your have your speakers tell a little bit about their journey to help set the tone. So I'm happy to tell you mine. The first part of the journey is I always talk about how I, I came to the United States when I was seven. So I grew up in, as an Immigrant story, so to speak. And if you grew up as an immigrant in the US, many immigrant parents say you can only be two things when you grow up, which is a doctor or a lawyer. And I ended up being neither, but they were still nonetheless happy that I lawyer,
0: Maybe an accountant. Maybe, yes. (laughs)
1: Exactly. But not a professor or an economist. That doesn't come through in some of those immigrant family stories. I would say the most transformative formative part of my experience that got me to where I am today was in high school. I had a really good economics teacher who taught me political economics. And funny enough, he got his master's in economics from George Mason University. Mm -hmm. And he was a high school teacher in the middle of nowhere in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, alongside the Amish, who are my neighbors, by the way. So it's really funny how that is.
0: Is that where you live right now? Are you in Lancaster
1: County? Yeah, I'm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's where I grew up and where I am as well. So I, I like to joke that when I first came to the U.S., we were I was in, in Armenia, which was part of the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union was collapsing at the time. And as many people might be aware, there were a lot of wars that were breaking out in the different types in the different countries that, that were part of the Soviet Union. And as a result, in Armenia, there was like blockades, no food shortages and no electricity. And then we moved to the U.S. from a place with no electricity to another place with no electricity, of course, for different reasons, for by choice, for the Amish. But anyway, that I like to tell that story because it's just hilarious that of all places in the U.S., we ended up in a place where the people don't want electricity.
0: (laughs) You can only like hopscotch the country where where other Amish or other Old Order Mennonites live to to encounter that. So you really, that's really a remark. You found a postage stamp in America where. that's true. I love your accent, actually, because it it's I've got family in South Jersey. And if you'd asked me where did I think you were from, I would have said South Jersey because I, I hear it just a little bit. But it's right there on the border between sort of <laughs> Philadelphia and and Southeast Pennsylvania. So anyway, that's great. So this high school, this high school econ teacher, how did he inspire you? What was the switch that flipped?
1: So he was really great at presenting the economic way of thinking. So he distanced himself from being, from saying that economics is about finance and stock markets and so forth, which is not interesting to me at all. He really can, and he really just presented economics as a lens to view the world and to view all different types of issues that you might care about. Maybe that is stock markets. And that wasn't the Mm -hmm. case for me. So at first, I, I distanced myself from taking economics courses because I just said, that's not interesting to me. I like history and art history. <laughs> but then I had a friend who took his economics class and he said, look, this political econ class is much more fascinating than just your standard economic or accounting <laughs> class. Speak. Mm-hmm. And he was just really great. His name is Lawrence Hagan, Larry Hagan. And it just really inspired in me It really inspired in me a way to understand the world. And for me at the time, it was fascinating because I was coming from a country that was poverty stricken and that did not look at all like the U.S. And he helped us understand too how the economic lens can help us explain why do we see such vast differences between these two countries and therefore different outcomes for people in those countries. And as a result, he ended up being my mentor. I know, Brown, you talk about mentors, right? He was my mentor and he said, look, if you're interested in political econ, I suggest you apply to George Mason University because, and by the way, that was right at the time when there was a second Nobel Prize winner in economics at George Mason. And uh, yeah, he advised that maybe you should apply there. And I've never heard of George Mason, but I applied, I got in and I decided to go to George Mason. And there, there were another set of mentors in the econ department, as you might be I might be aware, are the professors in our economics department at George Mason, they're just amazing human beings. Oh, they
0: are incredible. So, Ed
1: Gee, Don Boudreau just really love students, really love being mentors, love to teach. Dan
0: Klein. Yeah. Dan really Klein. One, yeah, really wonderful people.
1: Yeah. So, they ended up mentoring me as well through undergraduate and helped me get into grad school and pursue this path pursue this path in economics. And I just think, especially for someone who's who's an immigrant and maybe whose parents are not established in the country, it's hard to get mentorship through their family circle. And this is like where teachers and professors play such a vital role, play can play such a vital role for us. And I'm just forever grateful to the high school economics teacher and as well to my to the mentors, the econ professors at George Mason University.
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful group. And that's a terrific story. And it's all too uncommon, I think, today in higher ed in which in education generally, I can only imagine your parents, they, they may have dragged their feet a bit about this, about your study, your choice of institution and line of study and all of that. <laughs> yeah. And you need other people in your life like those kinds of mentors to say, no, this is fine. This is going to be really good. And you're great at this. And you could make a big contribution by, by doing this if it's what you want to do. And it was clear. That's the ideal. And from my standpoint, mm-hmm. in terms of educational, making choices about education and vocational pathway, it's just like, you need that good family support, people who love you and are dedicated to your success. And you also need these mentors to come alongside you and help balance that anxiety. Family is too close. They've got too much invested in you to, to be objective about who you are and what you need. So that, that alone, that story alone, I think is really worth paying attention to you are you're a senior researcher in this field and and you're you're very young but you you're a senior researcher researcher in this field of non-traditional or independent workers which every, i think everybody in this field is pretty young because it's a new comparatively new thing on on the scene of the american economy is the sort of rapid escalation in numbers of people who um, who opt for this kind of pathway in life of not going to a single employer and having the nine to five and trying to build a career that way, but instead, and building their own career on their own or in and loose alliances with others. Talk a little bit about that, how that's developed over the years. I know that Richard Florida and his work on the creative class has some things to say about this, but t- tell me what is the trajectory around independent work?
1: Yeah, so that, that's a great question for the listeners who don't know Richard Florida's work on the creative class. He basically identified this group of workers who are Who are in search of new and creative ways of working and who are thinkers and who want to apply creative ways of approaching problems. Now, a subset of independent workers do seem to fit into this characterization of the creative class. And he talks about workers who are knowledge workers or artists or uh, intellectuals who do not work in a standard 9 to 5 p.m. corporate employment role and who instead pursue their own ventures where the creation of new content and idea are at its core. And I'm going to give you a timely example that may resonate with your listeners and Brent that you're well aware of, which is the rapid growth of Substack. <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah, Richard, I feel,
0: like I, I feel like I'm devoting like yeah, 8% of my income subscribing to Substack. Yes, exactly.
1: So. so Richard Florida may say this. There you go. These are your creative class individuals. In this case, these are public intellectuals whose function is to create and discuss new ideas, perhaps in economics or public policy or in technology. For some of these public intellectuals, their Substack is their primary source of income. That's their job. It's not an employment job, but it's nonetheless a real job. And for other subscribers, it may be a supplementary source of income, or maybe they're trying to grow their subscribers to see if eventually it can be their primary source of income. Another timely example. Instagram influencers who are in all sorts of industries like fashion or creative arts. So this may also fit into Richard Florida's demographic of the creative class that has emerged. Now, the creative class doesn't describe all independent workers. We also have a subset and growth of gig economy workers who are primarily drivers and couriers. We also have traditional contracting roles such as electricians or plumbers. These are, these have always been, for the most part, independent contracting income opportunities that are outside of the employment arrangement. And by the way, also with the growth of digital platforms, you also have independent workers who are merchants and sellers, for example, on Etsy. But when we look at the data, we do see from official IRS tax data that the industry with the greatest share of independent contractors, whether as primary or supplementary earners, is in professional, scientific, and technical services, which is also the industry that has seen the greatest growth um, in independent contracting income since 2001. And that industry, for example, does include architectural and engineering services, advertising, design services. Now, that seems to suggest that maybe Richard Florida was onto something when he wrote about this in 2002 because these are essentially knowledge workers. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So knowledge work is not unlike tech work in the sense that it has a much bigger impact than its numbers would suggest. It's Mm. producing the kind of intellectual capital that gets created in these things tends to get out into the ecosystem and help drive a lot of other decision making across the economy, even if you have this is a relatively and it is a relatively small number of people in the out of the total workforce, it has a throw weight that really exceeds its numbers in terms of its influence on the this massive thing that we call the U.S. economy. So I wanted to ask a question about that. The is there a Florida talks about one of his books was about that the world is, the world's not flat, it's spiky. That you've got, you have concentrations of these workers. Do you think that's borne out in the data? what do you, sorry, what that, do you that,
1: mean by that, Brent? Concentration? A, a
0: concentrate geographic concentration oh. of creative class or of gig workers. Is this mainly a urban phenomenon? Is it mainly a coastal phenomenon? It, what's it look like across the country?
1: So that is a great question. If we take the broader view of what is independent worker, we don't see an urban or coastal phenomenon. We actually see the growth across all of the U.S., across different states as well. And that's what we see in the IRS data too. If you just hone down on gig economy drivers, then you might, then that spikes in cities like New York City, Los Angeles, and so forth. And you get less of that in the middle area. But if we take the broader view of like independent worker in general, you see that growth across all of the U.S. And take, for example, a freelance graphic designer, that freelance graphic designer can be located in the middle of nowhere in the US, but her her clients are across all of the US or across the world as well. And so that really enables this phenomenon of, I can work anywhere in the US, but still have demand that comes from across the whole world.
0: I've got, there are two interrelated questions here. Talk about, first of all, talk about, just talk about what the sheer numbers are around this independent workforce and the growth in those numbers over the last decade.
1: So one of the ways to track the growth of this workforce is by looking at 1099 tax data. It's probably the best way to track the growth of this workforce. So 1099 1099 reforms the tax form that workers get if they engage in contracting income versus W-2, which is employment income. The tax records indicate that the share of workers with independent contracting income has grown by 22% between 2001 and 2016 at a time when the share of workers with only employment income has decreased by 1.5%. Now, we are waiting, actually, it should be out in the next few weeks for the updated official tax data, and that'll give us post-pandemic data mm-hmm. as well. Based on survey evidence that I have seen, it looks like we're going to continue to see a growth in independent work even post-pandemic. Now, I will wait for the official tax data to to hang my hat on it, but else I will say we'll continue to see that growth according to the official tax data. And I know this now, is
0: hard to estimate because of the vagaries of the way that we collect the data, but what percentage of the workforce is mostly or exclusively doing this kind of work?
1: If we look at those, if we look at only independent contractors engaging in labor services as their main job, you're looking at somewhere at less than 10% of, of total employment, But but that's a very narrow field, Brent, because it's independent contractors only in labor services, only in their main type of job. If you broaden that to supplemental earners, but still in labor services, you're looking at somewhere close to 20% of the workforce. But again, it's all different because if you broaden it even more and say, okay, not only labor services, but anyone who's a seller on Etsy, like sellers and people who make income on Airbnb, you're looking at closer to 30% of the workforce as their primary source of income. Now that's huge, right? Yeah, that and it really diverse. like, again, and that that range is important because it's really how you define the work. If anyway, that, that yeah. kind of gives you a sense of the ranges and a sense of how big this workforce is.
0: So in that 30% figure, you'd be talking about almost 50 million people in the United States that have some re- or some relationship to this form of economic activity. That's a lot of people <laughs> that are in this field. But having said that, so we've got a lot of people who are doing mixes of different kinds of employment. We've got some people who are in it full time, some people who are dabbling and people mm-hmm. who have pr- rental properties. We've got all sorts of things going on out there. The people who are truly dependent on this as their main thing, they're still a pretty small slice of the economy, and that means that most people, the overwhelming majority of people, still are still in the economy where they have a W two and they're they've got a full time employment. They've got and of course our laws and regulate that means our laws and regulations haven't even begun to catch up with this new thing, the new issue. So talk a little bit about what some of those challenges are that need to be addressed in our employment law and the way that we organize benefits, health insurance and other benefits. How are people that are in the independent workforce, and how are they coping, and then what do they need in order to make this situation really work for them? in the future, do you think?
1: That's a great question, Brent. And I will say one thing. I think more people would be willing to go into independent work if we didn't, if they didn't have the issue of benefits tied to employment. So that's that we'll talk about that in a second here, because I think many people are afraid to go into this type of independent work because. They're thinking about, oh, but my health insurance is tied to my company and I have four kids and all of these other issues that surround kind of the risks you're taking when you're going into independent work. Let me back up for a second and tell you. Go ahead. Let me back up for a second and and let's talk about who are these independent workers. So independent workers are those workers who make. Income outside of the of outside of traditional employment, and it's legally classified as independent contracting or self-employment. And as we just discussed, these can be a diverse type of workers, right? These can be f- professional freelancers like a musician or graphic designer, Gig workers like on like an Uber driver or Doordash courier, medium skilled contractors, like an electrician or plumber. Or high skilled consultants like a financial consultant or environmental and scientific consultants. And as I mentioned, it could also be workers who are merchants or sellers on Etsy or the Instagram influencers or the public intellectual economists, sub stackers. So you've got a, you've got a large and diverse range of workers in this field. Now, this distinction between independent work and standard employment matters for tax purposes. It matters for labor regulations, and it matters for basic social insurance programs. For example, if you're an employee, you're subject to labor regulations on minimum wage, overtime regulations, and collective bargaining. mean Meaning that you're able to form a union if you're an employee. Independent contractors cannot form a union. So th- this is one of the problems that we're seeing in public policy, right? Like. We're seeing labor activists say, look, these gig gig drivers, gig economy drivers should be able to form a union, but they can't because they're independent contractors. Now, the other issue is, of course, social insurance programs and benefits. So if you're an employee, you have access to unemployment benefits. Independent contractors do not. If you're an employee, you often get health insurance through your employer, you might get your employer to contribute to retirement benefits as well. These are all things that are outside of the scope for independent workers. Now, this becomes an issue and a challenge for all independent workers. But the main show right now is about gig workers and platform workers, because Uber and DoorDash are just ubiquitous in our everyday lives. So when we think about the problem of independent contractors, we place it in the idea of, oh, my God, the Uber driver doesn't have benefits. Now, before I jump into that, I want to correct a a misconception that occurs in this public debate and among policymakers, which is the vast majority of gig workers. Those are on these on Uber, Lyft, DoorDash and so forth they are supplementary earners. We see this in official IRS tax data. So the growth in this workforce is driven almost entirely by workers who are using it as a supplementary source of income. And they often have full-time jobs. So they supplement their income with these uh, side hustles, driving and so forth. Now, that's really important to point out because it might mitigate some concerns about access to health insurance and workplace benefits for gig workers. Now it doesn't solve the problem for the independent contractor who is doing independent work as their primary source of income. That might be someone who is a professional freelancer who has 15 different clients and that is their main source of income. So that worker doesn't have access to employment-based benefits and some of these social insurance programs. But on the gig economy worker side, there are a minority of this workforce who are doing it full time and who don't have access to self-insurance. who don't have access to health insurance, but it's a minority of those of those workers. And actually, Jonathan Gruber, who is an economist at MIT, just did a study. It was posted on, as an NBER paper on Uber looking at benefits. And he did find that the majority of Uber, most Uber drivers are insured. And again, and that speaks to what does this workforce look like? It's because those gig workers are mostly supplementary earners. Right now, what we're seeing happening, though, is that policymakers are trying to address these challenges for independent contractors with the image of gig econ- going after gig economy workers. And there, I talk about it as there are two types of policy buckets that can be used to address the challenges for independent workers. So I I call the first bucket one reclassification policies. These are the type of policies that try to make it more difficult to be classified as an independent contractor, and therefore, it it's hoping that companies will therefore hire more of these workers as employees instead of independent contractors, because if they're employees, then they have access to benefits and labor regulations and so forth. So that's bucket number one solutions. They're called reclassification solutions. Bucket number two, I call access to portable benefits. And these are policies that say, Hey, let's allow independent workers to maintain their non traditional worker arrangements, but we try to improve their access to flexible benefits. Now, currently, most policymakers and regulators are only pursuing bucket one solutions for reclassification. And this is evident with the Department of Labor's back and forth changes and regulatory guidance on worker classification rules. It was also evident in California's AB5. So what did California's AB5 do? It They said it created a, strong, a stricter test that significantly limited the circumstances for being an independent contractor in California. So I discuss usually several drawbacks from reclassification policies. The most significant drawback from reclassification policies is that there is a risk that many independent contractors would not receive the additional benefits associated with becoming employees because those independent contractors would neither become employees nor be able to maintain their jobs as independent contractors. Now, this is pretty simple because companies obviously cannot extend all contracting positions into employment positions. So it leaves many workers with fewer job opportunities altogether. Now you can imagine a company that had like Uber, for example, they have workers who work maybe five hours a week. <laughs> you can't extend that into an employment full time or even part time position. And they work varying different hours week by week and so forth. And, but anyway, as, this is something that we did see happen in the immediate aftermath of California's AB5. So businesses such as theaters, music venues, and small media organizations, they actually cut contracting jobs after AB5. It's also worth noting that AB5 went after gig economy companies, but because The way that they do that is by altering the definition of independent contractors. It impacted all independent workers. So your freelance musicians, tutors who are freelancers, translators, who are freelancers, truckers, who are freelancers. And as a result, there was this backlash to AB5. And so a lot of industries asked to be exempt, the music industry and the theaters and so forth, dancers are all freelancers, and they asked to be exempt after a set of profiles by the Los Angeles Times, for example, highlighted how it led to job losses for these workers and contracting job losses that didn't turn into employment opportunities for them. Now, that's... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's I think it's second nature for people like you and me to say, why in heaven's name would we want to in do, to introduce this kind of rigidity into a labor market in which all the trends are toward flexibility? Because this is what it's what people want and it is absolutely essential in a period of rapid transition, which we were certainly in, in terms of the economy and technology, that that we have these kinds of flexibilities. So it's second nature to us to believe that this is ridiculous, what you just described, these reclassification policies. Is it just a desire on the part of those who support the policy to to address kind of the social insurance gap that exists in American society, where we've got a lot of people who who just, they aren't getting, they they don't, most people have health insurance coverage now. At least I thought that was the point behind Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act programs. But it, is, is that it? Or is there something else that people are concerned about?
1: So I'm going to give you a Political economy, public choice response, <laughs> and then like a hopeless optimist, yeah. optimist response. <laughs> so the political economy and public choice response is that policies like AB five are driven by labor unions. And in fact, labor unions did write AB five right into California. Now, why do labor unions support AB five is because the more workers become self-employed or independent contracting, that's fewer workers that can join in a union, right? Because self-employed workers, independent contractors, they go against the union business model because the union business model is about employees. Now that's the public choice, political economy perspective. The, the, hopeless, the hopeless, optimist, optimist perspective yeah. is that, look, there are workers who are misclassified and there are a subset of workers, and I do believe that there are a subset of workers who are misclassified. And so some of these policies may be trying to address those workers. And, and I think they can be helpful, but in, but localized, right? In certain industries where there is an issue or going after certain companies, if it was an issue, right? But by no means does it make sense to have a broad brushstroke approach for the whole state or for a whole country. And an AB5 particular is just kind of insane to me because there's so many different types of freelancers that it impacted (laughs) in California who are not gig workers. And by the way, gig workers are no longer subject to California's AB5 because they passed the ballot measure called Proposition 22. So it's just mind-boggling to me because they went through this image that we're going after gig economy companies. But in, in fact, they didn't go after gig economy companies because Prop 22 passed. And they went through all these other different types of independent contractors. The musicians hated this rule, right? And, <laughs> the musicians are like, we don't want this rule.
0: <laughs> and Prop 22 passed because it, this was affecting so many, the livelihoods of so many people. Who just revolted against this? Basically, this overreach into the economy, and that really sounds like a from a politically from your standpoint of your political economy analysis, that really sounds like a losing proposition to me. You are not going to win this fight if you are messing with people's rice bowls, as it were, their how they feed themselves. People get very antsy about that.
1: I think the fundamental problem is that labor activists and unions want to cling to the past and think about – you hear this notion of it's not your grandfather's workplace, right? So you're not at one company, one stable job, you're an employee, you work nine to five and we have to welcome that the nature of work is changing. Many people don't want to be employees. Many people want to be into, want to go into these maybe creative fields. Maybe they just want, they just really value flexibility and sometimes they require flexibility, right? And as a result, If we want to welcome new workers and new ways of working, we have to rethink old solutions. So we can't be like, let's make everyone an employee. That's not going to help in this case. So that's why I think about the second bucket of policy solutions, which is access to portable benefits. And by the way, I do want to point out, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, almost 80% of independent contractors prefer their non-traditional work arrangement over employment arrangement. And then we when we look at surveys of all different types of independent contractors in different industries and fields, we also see that's the case. And the number one reason is flexibility. Like I prefer flexibility, or I prefer to be my own boss, or I want to work in this because it enables me to do something else that I need to do, pursue a, an entrepreneurial venture. So I need to turn my app on and off to work when I can while at the same time working on a side business model. So you get all of these different types of workers who are using flexible forms of work in pursuit of whatever it is that they want to pursue. And I work a lot on thinking about women who use this type of work to be able to make income while also um, while also engage in primary caregiving to their family members, whether it's kids or, old- or older parents. Now, The problem that we're seeing for these new type of workers is that by its very design, all our workplace benefits are tied to only one form of work. So we have new types of work that are emerging, but benefits are tied to only one form of work, the employment relationship. And one big problem is that current laws in the United States actually restrict organizations and businesses and hiring parties from providing independent contractors with benefits. Precisely because those benefits like healthcare, retirement, vacation days, paid or sick leave, parental benefits, whatever it is, have conventionally been tied to employer-employee relationships. So that means if a company were to provide benefits to their independent contractors, those workers would likely have to be reclassified as employees, and then they lose their independence and flexibility as well. Now, that's a problem. And that's why I point to thinking about access to portable benefits as a solution. Now, in this policy brief that I wrote, I say, look, the most simple, low-hanging fruit solution that we can do today to enable access to portable benefits is just get rid of that factor, like from worker classification tests. So if Uber wants to give benefits to their drivers, don't use it against them in their worker classification test. Now, it's very simple. That's the least thing that we can do to enable access to portable benefits. It would need to be a change done at the federal level as well as in states because states' employment laws also include this provision of employee benefits used in worker classification tests. So the Department of Labor, the IRS and state governments can make a simple change that says the presence of employee benefits can't be used in worker classification tests. Now, as we're talking today on March 15th, two weeks ago, Utah legislator passed this exact rule in their state. It's awaiting the governor's signature right now, which should enable Utah to be the first state in the country to get rid of the to get rid of that legal barrier that prevents benefits flowing to independent contractors. It's not a hundred percent clear how this will play out in practice because there's a problem of what if the Department of Labor and the IRS yeah. get on um, get involved as well. But it is a right move in the right direction to see what about other states getting involved and so forth. And by the way, we've seen this happen in other social change issues as well. Decriminalization of marijuana, right, started first in states. And then later, the federal government got on board as well. So it's just it's nice and promising to see that there has been one state that has accepted that, look, these are new forms of work that are emerging. Let's allow benefits to go to these new forms of work as well, not only to employment,
0: yeah, that's we were chatting a bit before the recording started about this. But if you're looking for innovation and policy, Utah is the place to look. Just because they they really see they almost see their state as a regulatory sandbox. Let's try different stuff, see how it works, with the understanding that if it doesn't work or if it creates more headaches than it solves, then you know. Then we can reform it or we can go back or the, there's a real willingness, I think, to experiment and to try, which is pretty rare in public policy these days. Everybody's so terrified of existing, disrupting existing equities almost around every single policy issue. I'm, lo- I'm really looking forward to to seeing how this turns out. I'm going to pause here for just a second, Hunter. We need to wrap this up so Leah, you, you've already alluded to this, but I want to take a few minutes to go deeper into this question. You, you said earlier that these policy, as it relates to independent workers, is particularly relevant for women who are. I'm not making a normative judgment here at all, or normative statement. I'm just saying that, as a matter of reality, if you look at any of the studies on this, women do the caregiving the bulk of the caregiving in American society, and because they're engaged in that level of caregiving, having this kind of flexibility really matters. And I know you've focused on this, so why don't you walk us through why, why independent work, what the research tells us about why it's so important to women.
1: So because independent work is fundamentally flexible, these flexible job arrangements can be transformative for women who are primary caregivers in their households. Now, one from one research study, we actually do see that self-employment rates are higher for women who have young children, and that self-employed women seem to have more flexibility in their work, location, and hours as compared to women in traditional employment. And the study does find that mothers with young children – at home use self-employed opportunities to spend an additional two hours per day with their children. Now, the 1099 tax data also do indicate that female independent contractors are more likely to have children than female employees. And by the way, what's also fascinating is that from this official tax data, The majority of the growth of independent contracting has been among women more so than men. Now we don't typically think of this because we've got the Uber, Uber's conquest of America in our minds when we think about independent contracting and most Uber drivers are not women. But it's just telling, it just, it's just telling because if you, zoom out for a second and think about independent contracting in general, we do see from this official tax data that this growth has been coming from a majority from women.
0: Now, I just interrupt for this and just ask, has anybody done any studies that you're aware of on the relationship between societies that do accommodate this in terms of overall fertility? You just mentioned that women who are independent workers are more likely to have kids than women that are full-time in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Has anybody looked at this as a – we've tried all sorts of policy responses to stop demographic decline in a lot of different countries, but I'm wondering if this has ever been brooded as a potential policy lever in that.
1: So one recent new study that came out didn't look at independent work, but it looked at remote work – in the u.s and it did find that remote work is enabling more parents to have kids and to have more kids and this came out with the economic innovation group i think adam ozimak was one of the was one of the authors of that but that connects to independent work right because a lot of independent work can be remote work. I'm clearly not an Uber driver or a DoorDash courier, but a lot of independent work can be remote work. And to that extent, we can see that connection between fertility and independent work to the extent that the independent work is remote work.
0: Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it would be a, a fruitful conversation, as it were, a fruitful conversation to have among people who are really focused on demographic decline, people like Lyman Stone and others who are really thinking hard about this as a challenge for the future. And and this as, because we know that like direct subsidies don't actually seem to have much effect. But if the answer is people just need more time and they need more flexible time, then that's something that we might be able to work on.
1: So I did a study with with my co-author Paula Suarez and we examined why women are selecting into certain non-traditional work arrangements and we used the Department of Labor sponsored base Onet which has like over 900 occupations and all different types of work contacts related to those occupations and we did find that women self-select into independent contracting roles where greater autonomy defines the work Where the role allows for greater freedom to make decisions and the structure activities and more, and where there is more, essentially more flexibility. And this is, this has been a fundamental thing for women in the workplace because we see in different studies, women do self-select into the types of work that allow for greater temporal flexibility, even within traditional employment, right? And then we're also seeing that women are self-selecting into independent work roles. We're also independent work roles that do allow for greater temporal flexibility and that and part of that is more independent work roles that are remote working roles as Mm, well
0: it's so this is really so interesting and uh, it seems like women are intuitive libertarians on this issue of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> work flexibility.
1: I'm not sure they're thinking about it in that way. <laughs>
0: no, that's what I mean. It's it's implicit or intuitive. It's, I we, I really need this. I need this to make my life work. Leah, thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating. It always is. We have you working as part of our workforce futures initiative. I've been to your events at Mercatus. I could sit and listen to you all day and appreciate so much how your work is influencing the world around you and what a model it is for vocational excellence as well.
1: Thank you so much, Brent. It's been great to chat with you about this. Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also email vocation at AEI.org If you have questions or comments about the episode, we hope that wherever you are and whatever you do, that you find a job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.